Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. VPR is staffed by Master of Public Policy students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, Joshua Margulies. Welcome to Academical. In this episode, VPR's Editor-in-Chief Jack DiMatteo and Associate Editor Alexandre Fall sit down with Chris Liu, Senior Fellow at the Miller Center here at UVA. Previously, Lou worked in the office of then-Senator Barack Obama before eventually leading the Obama-Biden transition team. He then served in the Obama administration as White House Cabinet Secretary before ultimately becoming Deputy Secretary of Labor in 2014. The conversation touches on Lou's education, government service, the upcoming 2020 elections, and the current political and policy landscape, among other things. Enjoy. Um, so I'm Jack DiMatteo. I'm the Editor-in-Chief, Virginia Policy Review. Very lucky uh, to be joined here today by Chris Liu, former Cabinet Secretary and Deputy Secretary of Labor in the Obama Administration, and also Alexander Fall on the Virginia Policy Review staff. So I'll let them briefly introduce themselves, and then we'll dig right into some questions with uh, Mr. Liu. Great. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I served in the Obama Administration for seven years, worked previously for uh, then-Senator Obama, also ran his presidential transition. Uh, have spent 20 years in government, and I'm now a senior fellow at, at the Miller Center here at UVA. Yeah, um, Alexander Paul, thank you very much for coming out. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, so we're, I guess we're going to dive into the sure. questions. Um, like the students here at the Batten School at UVA, you attended a School of Public Policy, um, the, Woodrow, the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. Um, how did the academic background prepare you for the work you subsequently do throughout your career? Well, uh, let me just say that the training you all have is something I never got. I, w I was a public policy undergraduate major, so I'm always embarrassed to say I've taken introductory macroeconomics and introductory microeconomics and nothing else. <laughs> I've never taken a statistics class in my life. And so the analytical tools that you're acquiring here, the, 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 the training is something that I never had, so I, I'm envious. Um, but what I enjoyed about studying public policy is just the interdisciplinary nature of it, not only political science, economics, history, sociology, uh, all the fields coming together because to be an effective policymaker, you need to have a broad understanding of all of those topics. Absolutely. And, and then coming out of school, one of the things that I found interesting in your background is that you've served in all three branches of government. Um, and so started out in the worked in the judicial branch, also served in the legislative branch for Congressman Waxman, uh, the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. I'm curious, with Democrats now in control of the House, uh, where do you think your former committee should be focused, either with investigations or policy? I, I think they're going to have a lot to focus on. There hasn't really been much oversight over the last two years. And it's everything from policy decisions by the Trump administration, personnel, uh, the president's uh, personal uh, business interests. I think everything uh, is potentially on the table. Uh, I think what the Oversight Committee is doing is being selective, and the first investigation out of the box is looking at the security clearance process at the White House, uh, which again, not a partisan issue, uh, but I think has um, important implications for national security. Uh, you may have read there was a recent article that uh, in, in the NBC News website that 30 people who currently work at the White House were initially denied security clearances by a career uh, a staffer uh, and then were overruled by a political appointee. 
that's troubling. And so that's where the Oversight Committee is starting, and that's a good place to, to, to kick off. You know, functionally, the Oversight Committee looks at a whole way, range of issues dealing with waste, fraud, and abuse. And as I said, a lot of it isn't partisan. It's about uh, how do government programs run, uh, what's going well, what's not going well, and how can we do better. And so uh, I worked there for eight years, and it was, uh, um, it was a fascinating um, part of my career. It's not something I had previously understood, but uh, oversight is really a critical constitutional responsibility of Congress. Um, this is just a like question that I kind of uh, got after reading through your profile. What made you um, transition from Sidley to the Oversight yeah. Committee? Like, so yeah, I went to law school and then I clerked for a judge for a year, spent four and a half years at a, a large law firm in Washington, D.C., I'll be honest, I wasn't a very good lawyer, and, and it wasn't that I didn't work hard enough, and it wasn't that I didn't, um, I think I was plenty smart, but I don't think I worked hard enough. And fundamentally, I didn't enjoy the work of a law firm, and I'm not knocking law firm work. It's it's important. My wife is a lawyer. That's how we met. Uh, public service is something that I had always wanted to do, and so, you know, when I paid off my student loans... Uh, I went straight into government. I took a 40% pay cut and went to work for the government. And I've never had a regret since then. Yeah, and, and so then what uh, drew you to working with Senator Obama at that point specifically? Well, I, look, I always say um, it's better to be lucky than good. And I had the fortune of being a law school classmate of Barack Obama. And, you know, I was having a perfectly fine career before he became a U.S. Senator. Obviously, my career took a slightly different path after he got elected to the U.S. Senate in 2004. And, you know, he he asked me to come and help start up his uh, legislative, um, the legislative part of his Senate office. I became the legislative director. So I was really in charge of not only every bill he introduced, every statement he made on the, the Senate floor or in committee, every vote he took. Uh, every letter he signed as a senator. And so, uh, you know, it was a really hard job, but I'm proud of what we accomplished. <laughs> Admittedly, during a very short Senate career, we, we managed to pass some legislation, and we really, um, I think, set the stage for his future presidential run as well as some of the policies he ended up pursuing when he became president. Um, and then, so... While Obama's kicking off his campaign, you continued on as legislative director. Was was it more difficult um, to have to like deal with this campaign? And yeah, it's it's been very difficult, and I've it's funny you say that. I've sat down with a couple of the presidential candidates who are senators right now, and I say, hey, here's how you juggle your day job as a U.S. senator, and how you juggle your your nights and weekends job as a presidential candidate. It is hard. Uh, it's hard because uh, the senator. Uh, spent most of his time in 2007 in Iowa and New Hampshire and raising money and all the things you need to do to run for president, yet he fully understood that he had a day job as uh, the junior senator from Illinois, and he still had to get legislation passed. He had to still bring home money, and he stole money to our constituents um, through, we still had earmarks back in the day, and, you know, we had to deal with, um, ensure that we had good constituent service, and we were doing all the things a senator would do and it was challenging because you had to do all of that uh, often without a boss who was physically present in Washington DC so I continued on as the legislative director eventually became the acting chief of staff and then 
uh, in the beginning of 2008 was asked to start thinking about a potential presidential transition should he win and then became the executive director of the Obama-Biden transition. Mm. So you mentioned that you have met with a couple senators who are thinking about or, or actively running for president now. Um, and one of the things I, I think will continue to come up in the Democratic primary is the extent to which there's daylight between the candidates on policy issues yeah. versus um, you know, more uh, messaging and the vision they present. And I'm curious how you assess that in the field as it's shaping up right yeah. now and, and what you see the differences being between the candidates. One of the painful lessons I learned during the 2007-2008 Democratic primary is that policy really doesn't matter that much. <laughs> there are some minor policy differences. More, it more often comes down to stylistic differences between the candidates, or it comes down to a vision, or it comes down to experience. You know, um, you know, right now within the Democratic Party, you know, we've embraced Medicare for all. But I defy you to ask any one of the candidates, you know, what exactly that means, and everyone has a different conception of it. We as Democrats believe in expanding health care. We believe in making it more affordable. And that's ultimately the goal. How we get there, what we call it, is sort of less relevant along the way. And so I, I think um, we're, campaigns are, are silly season, and these minor policy differences, to the extent there are even differences, will be magnified. But, you know, all of the candidates, the major candidates that have announced on the Democratic side, you know, fall into kind of a mainstream of Democratic thought, whether it's on health care or education or immigration. So uh, that, that, that doesn't mean they won't be fighting over their minor differences, but functionally they're all on the same page. Um, and so after, uh, I guess, the hysteria of the campaign, you were asked to... In seat, you were asked in secret to uh, be the head of the transition team. Mm -hmm. Could you describe that process, your role in it, and the significance? Yeah, in April of 2008, um, we were at that point still several months away from wrapping up the Democratic nomination. In fact, um, we were about to get our clocks cleaned in like Ohio and Texas and other states. And so um, it, the, the fact that he would be the nominee was not assured at that point. And then even if he were the nominee, we would have to go through about five more months of a general election campaign. But Senator Obama understood that planning a presidential transition really is one of the most important things you could do. It's, it's a very interesting tradition that we have. In 2008, we had 77 days between Election Day and Inauguration Day. And during that period of time, uh, we, would have ha we had to find the 4,000 political appointees that would staff the senior levels, not only of the White House, but all of the different agencies. We had to develop the policies that uh, would be rolled out. Uh, we had to understand all the procedures of how government works. It's an amazing, it's an amazing task to do, and it's a task for which you cannot ask for an extension of time. Ready or not, at noon on January 20th, you take over uh, the government. And so he understood it also, Senator Obama understood that this would be the first post-9-11 transition so that there would be homeland security considerations, continuity issues that we needed to address as well. So he didn't want to wait till the morning after Election Day to figure this out. So we started planning. I started planning in secret about six months before Election Day. And, and I think our work has paid off. I, you know, I think most political observers consider our transition to be the best run uh, in recent history. Yeah, and, and I do want to get to your work in the administration itself, but one, one final question on the transition. I know that 
uh, several members of the Obama administration, including President Obama himself, have really given the Bush administration a lot of credit for how helpful they were in the transition process. And I'm wondering um, how that process, to the extent that you're aware of it, um, contrasted between the Bush administration and how President Obama tried to continue that with his successor. You know, I spent a lot of time over at the Bush White House in the summer of 2008 uh, meeting with their lead transition person who was the deputy chief of staff to the president. Uh, and I would go to these meetings and on the other side of the table would be a representative from the McCain campaign. And I'm fully aware that the people in the White House, the Bush White House, preferred that Senator McCain succeed them versus us sure. succeed them. But they never treated us any differently at all, and I, you know, I've been publicly, um, I've, I've, I've publicly acknowledged the important role that they played in that. While we planned a great transition, the success we had would not have materialized, but for the cooperation we got. And President Obama made those same statements and pledged that he would give that same level of cooperation uh, to our successors. Um, I would say, and you know, the history will be written on the transition, uh, the Trump transition. Uh, Chris Christie himself, in his new book, has actually been very, uh, uh, very, very vocal about how poorly planned it is. And I think, you know, we all can see. I mean, that's. I, I think we can stipulate that it has not been the. It was not the best planned transition. And I think even two years after inauguration day, a lot of the challenges that they continue to face, whether it's in terms of um, jobs not being filled, in terms of um, not quite understanding the procedures, either the White House or the agencies are not having fully fleshed out policy proposals, can be traced back to a poorly planned transition. Mm -hmm. Chris Christie, people forget, was supposed to be the head of the transition, and the day after Election Day he was unceremoniously fired. All the work that he had done before Election Day was, was tossed into the garbage can. Huge mistake, uh, because you can't put a government together in such a short period of time without a tremendous amount of preparation. Um, so, so you held several positions in the Obama administration, including cabinet secretary and deputy secretary of labor. Um, what are some of the things uh, that you're proud of during your time? You know, my time at the White House, um, my job as the White House cabinet secretary was to be the liaison between the White House and, and, and all of the federal agencies. Um, you know, at the time, I, and again, you can ask any of the, if, if you ever have a chance to talk to our Obama cabinet members, um, they'll tell you, God, Chris Lee was kind of a pain in the butt. He would ask <laughs> us a lot of questions about the trips we were going on. Were we flying, you know, on a private jet? Were we going first class? How many people were we bringing? Policy announcements. All the things that you now see in the past <laughs> two years, every one of these uh, scandals, ethics scandals, improprieties, all these things were things we didn't have. And it's because we, we ran a pretty tight ship. And, you know, President Obama often jokes now, no one in his administration went to jail. Um, and that's 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 a pretty remarkable statement because I think if you go back to any administration, Democrat or Republican, people go to jail. That's just what happens. We ran a very ethical administration, and it required um, a lot of checking and double checking by myself and my staff. Uh, I think we had one of the most cohesive cabinets in the first four years of the administration, in particular the first two years. Uh, and so I played a, I think you know a, an important role in maintaining. Uh, that team atmosphere among the president and the cabinet members. I think from a policy perspective, I think most to uh, digging ourselves out of the Great Recession. Um, three weeks after President Obama took office, 
uh, Congress passed the $800 billion Recovery Act. Um, the agencies had to get that $800 billion out the door as quickly as possible to help kickstart the economy. We did that. Uh, I mean, I think the results, the proof of that is now an economic recovery that's gone for now more than nine years. Uh, obviously, the passage of the Affordable Care Act is a big accomplishment. Um, uh, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell is also an important social issue for us. Um, there were so many things that we did along the way, um, whether it's education reform, um, whether it's the things that we did in, in job training as well. So um, the first two years in particular were very active years, uh, in part because of um, uh, having a Democratic Congress. Um, I'm also impressed that by how we stood up because oversight is a congressional responsibility. Uh, we had no share of oversight coming in our direction from uh, first from uh, House Republicans and eventually from Senate Republicans. Uh, and I think we withstood that uh, very well. Um, at the de as the Deputy Secretary of Labor, which was my second job in the administration, we really tried to refocus the government's job training efforts. Uh, we used to always joke that uh, government job training is often uh, train and pray. You train people for jobs and pray they get them. And what we really tried to do is be much more systematic about what skills would be in demand in the near future and long-term future, mm -hmm. and how do we retool our training programs, in particular using community colleges to help people prepare for jobs in the 21st century. Um, we did a lot to uh, incentivize apprenticeships, which are a, a proven training model in Europe and bring those to the United States. Uh, we advocated on behalf of increasing the minimum wage, which while it hasn't happened at the federal level, um, certainly has happened at the state and local level. Uh, we pushed on paid leave, both paid family leave, paid sick leave policies. Um, and so uh, I'm proud of the work that we did both to help people find jobs uh, and to help grow wages in the country. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think that these issues that you mentioned of the changing American workforce and, you know, the evolution of the economy in the 21st century, that the current administration has um, seemed to think that the proper response would be tariffs, um, you know, walling off, whether literally or metaphorically. Um, and I'm curious um, what you think the long-term implications of that approach would be and then how you think we should be uh, reimagining this issue in 2020 and beyond. <clears throat> yeah, I, you know, one um, of the things we tried to push in the Obama administration was the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And I will tell you that, you know, when you're the Deputy Secretary of Labor and you're asked to go sell TPP to a bunch of union, to, 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 to union members, that doesn't go very well. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and I understand that. Um, trade, immigration are really, really hard issues, um, and that they're issues that don't necessarily break down along party lines. And in what it reflects more broadly is a, 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 an economic insecurity in this country right now. And this is not, this was not caused by Democrats, it was not caused by Republicans, but frankly, neither party has been able to solve this issue. You know, for the overwhelming majority of workers in this country, their wages have been flat for the last 20 or 30 years, while the cost of everything around them has gone up. To the extent that wealth has been created in this country, it's been among the super wealthy. Um, we've got urban and suburban areas that are booming from a job creation standpoint, and we have rural areas that are suffering right now. And so this, this, is, this has created not only economic insecurity. It's created a lot of in social instability. Um, it's one of the reasons that immigration um, has become such a, 
emotional issue right now. Um, it's also one of the challenges in trying to push free trade agreements um, because, you know, pe people are not, people in the United States are not losing their jobs to immigrants. They're not losing their jobs to trade. They're losing it to globalization. They're losing it to some extent globalization, but they're losing it, um, a lot of it to automation. They're losing it to technology. Uh, if you go to any factory right now and compare it to the way it looks 20 years ago, that factory, modern factory, is producing far more than it, than it did 20 years ago with far fewer people. And so the economy is changing, um, and we need to change along with that. And the answer is not to go back to failed policies like tariffs. Um, it's how do we impact, it's, it's also not, frankly, tax cuts as well. It's how do we provide uh, Americans the right education, the right training, and the right job opportunities to help them succeed in this country right now. Um, it's really interesting that you say all this because Jack actually wrote a uh, op-ed on this exact issue, and I guess uh, I, we're going to ask for you to weigh in. How how do you present um, more difficult uh, more difficult policy options to a public that just wants to hear the easy easy solution, whether it be um, with jobs going away or uh, in access to health care? I mean, this is, it's, it, this is a challenge. Um, I am, um, uh, I use Twitter a lot. Um, I do a lot of, um, I do a lot of TV commentary. Um, you know, I get, um, I get 280 characters on Twitter and I get on TV, uh, if I can get one minute out without being interrupted, that's pretty good. Um, it's hard to have um, a detailed conversation about trade in 280 characters. Right. Uh, or to explain um, what the, 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 the what immigration means to this country, both um, legal immigration, high skilled, low skilled, um, to explain that um, undocumented immigrants aren't committing crimes, they're not taking jobs away from people, um, and it's a challenge. And I think um, you know this. This I think, frankly, is a challenge for policymakers because, it's, as you say, it's always easier to go back to the simple mantra, the simple solution. The complexities get very, very hard. Um, and and it's, it's magnified by the fact that you've obviously got cable news networks on both sides of the political spectrum um, who frankly are more interested in demagoguing these issues rather than having a r rational conversation. Um, and newspapers aren't what they used to be and there are a lot fewer than they used to be. So it's a challenge and you know, and, and um, you know, social media uh, rewards hysteria. It rewards demagogy more than um, serious conversation about these issues. So I'm not sure I have an answer to your question. As we uh, head into the final five minutes or so, one of the things I wanted to ask um, about your own background is being just the second Asian American to ever become Deputy Secretary of a Cabinet Department, one of the highest ranking Asian Americans in the administration. Curious how important uh, that piece was of who you are to your work and what you think um, is lost in administration like the current one that has a lack yeah. of diversity. So I'm the child of immigrants. Uh, my father uh, worked in the federal government. Um, I have um, two aunts and one uncle who were federal career civil servants. Uh, I was raised being taught that there's no better way to give back to the country that's been so good to your family than to serve in government. Um, you know what I'm proud about? I, I'm proud that doors were open for me and that I'm able to open them for other people 
both Asian Americans and non-Asian Americans along the way. You know, one of the um, uh, one of the proudest moments I had when I was at the White House managing President Obama's cabinet is uh, he at one at the very beginning of the administration named three Asian Americans to the cabinet. Um, that was only the third, fourth, and fifth in U.S. history, and to have a chance to serve with them, and they were remarkable individuals who had been accomplished in their own right before coming to government, was really, um, it, it was personally meaningful to me. And, you know, at the end of the Obama administration in uh, December of 2016, we did a gathering of uh, Asian American political appointees who had served. And we, we weren't even able to gather all of them because we did it on relatively short notice. There were well over 150 people in that room, and you could probably there were probably another hundred that weren't able to make it. Those those political appointees um, will be the future, you know, chiefs of staff and secretaries in future Democratic administrations. And so, um, I'm proud to have. Um, uh, I'm not a trailblazer, but maybe I've widened the trail for the next generation that's come along. And yeah, we very much appreciate you widening that trail. Um, one last question. Sure. Um, as we graduate from the Batten School at UVA and prepare to head into our careers, uh, what advice would you give those who aspire to pursue careers in public service? Do it. <laughs> I will tell you, uh, in this time of political polarization, uh, it's easy to get down on what's happening in government. But I, having spent 20 years doing this, I can't think of a more rewarding way to spend your career. Look, you're never going to get rich doing it. Uh, and frankly, if you get rich in government, you probably should be investigated. <laughs> but th there's no other, well, there are few other ways that you can make as big an impact on a lot of people's lives at one time as working in government, working in public service. Um, but I, you know, and I'll, I'll make one shameless plug. Um, I'll, I'll make many shameless plugs. <laughs> Um, in, in 2014, I gave um, the baccalaureate address at my alma mater, Princeton University. My, my address is online, um, so I won't repeat all of it. But my point was this. Public service takes many forms. It doesn't mean just working in the government. It could be, um, it could be serving in the military. It could be being a teacher. It could be a research scientist. It could be being, uh, working at a foundation. Um, I always say public service could also be just going out and earning a lot of money and then using the money to help the public good. You know, you go back and think about 100 years ago, um, the, 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 the philanthropists of the day were people who made a lot of money, sometimes in pretty unseemly ways. You know, you think about the Carnegies and the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and the Stanford, and they used their monies to create libraries and research institutions and endow universities and big foundations. And you think about who is the, the biggest philanthropist of our time, um, it's a, a Harvard University dropout who started a software company, and and you know Bill Gates has now given his money to to try to solve the world's greatest problems. So there's no one way to be involved in public service. Um, it's a mindset, but I encourage everyone to do it. I will also say to more immediately in terms of career opportunities. I know the easy option is to go into the federal government. Um, I would strongly encourage. Uh, your classmates to consider state and local government. I, it's funny, having spent my entire career in the federal government, um, I'm a big proponent of state and local government. I think it's you can get much more accomplished, particularly in this polarized, gridlock 
Washington that we have. You can do much more at the state and local level. And I think you can actually see more immediately the impact of your work on people's lives uh, when you're working on a smaller scale. So go into public service, consider state and local government. Absolutely. Well, as we wrap up, I know you mentioned you're active on social media and TV appearances, so how can our uh, listeners keep up with okay. you? Uh, best way is on Twitter, Chris Liu, um, C-H-R-I-S-L-U 44, Chris Liu 44. Um, I'm shamelessly tweeting all day long. <laughs> I'm also tweeting uh, about my uh, TV appearances, um, and so that's the best way to follow me. Great. Well, Chris, thank you so much for making the time today. It was a real pleasure, and uh, hopefully our listeners uh, appreciate your insights and your perspectives. No, thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation, and I wish you all well. Great. Thank you so much. You can follow VPR on Twitter at VA Policy Review and on Facebook and LinkedIn at Virginia Policy Review. If you would like to contribute to our print publication, please visit us at virginiapolicyreview.org. Submissions for our spring 2019 issue are now open. We will be accepting submissions on a rolling basis until March 29th, 2019. Lastly, BPR will yet again be hosting our National Journal Conference. Registration is now open. The 2019 conference will be held here in Charlottesville on March 30th, 2019. More details can be found on our website. Editing for this episode was done by yours truly. Our music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm your host, Joshua Margulies. Until next time, be excellent to each other.